We're going to look at uh, 1 Kings 19, so if you want to have that uh, open uh, before you, it's on page uh, 325 of the Church Bibles, that's 1 Kings uh, 19, uh, sorry, uh, 323 of the Church Bibles, uh, 1 Kings 19, and we're going to work our way through it starting at, at verse uh, 1, and working our way to the, to the end. I wonder if you've ever felt uh, like running away, whether you've ever got to that point where things are just crowding in on you so much or you just don't know what to do next and all, that, uh, all you really want to do is just go away and hide somewhere. Um, I know it's something that happens uh, to children a lot, but uh, I think as adults, I know sometimes I want to do that. Maybe I don't actually physically do it, but that's what I, I feel in my, in my head. It's just maybe it's uh, a disappointment or some stress or anxiety or just despair where everything seems to be going wrong and all we want to do is run away. And uh, it's not an uncommon thing, actually, that we do get to that place where we just can't see a way forward at all. And, uh, you know, most of the time we want a way forward, but if we can't find a way forward, we just want a way out. And uh, as I've been studying this chapter, I really think it will help us. Uh, Maybe if you're in that position or you know somebody that's in that position, I really think there's a lot we can learn from this chapter about Elijah. And... uh, Hopefully you'll know the context of that. If you look in the chapter before, chapter 18, it's one of those where we might talk about a mountaintop experience followed by a real valley of despair, a real kind of roller coaster ride. Because in, verse, in chapter 18, Elijah has this amazing victory uh, over the uh, prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel where God really shows uh, that he is the only true God and uh, all the other uh, gods are just nothing. They're just man's inventions and... Uh, There's this uh, uh, real cleansing of Israel, and Israel kind of turns back to the Lord, and there's the end of the drought. And it's an incredible kind of victory for the glory of God, but also a real kind of vindication for Elijah uh, himself as a prophet. And then uh, we turn to uh, chapter 19, and you'll see in verses 1 and 2, King Ahab goes and tells his wife, and all of a sudden things just turn like that, because Jezebel threatens Elijah, she says in verse 2, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if, you do not, if I do not take, uh, make your life as the like... Sorry, let me start again. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So there's this threat with this real kind of uh, short uh, time period of basically, yeah, I'm going to kill you tomorrow. And uh, if not, then something bad should happen to me. And it's really interesting if you look in verse 3... It says that when Elijah saw that, he arose and ran for his life. That's funny, isn't it? Got a one minute, he's got this incredible victory, uh, and God really shows his authority and his power. And the next minute, you've got the same prophet running for his life because of the threats of one woman. And for me, it's interesting that he said, when he saw that, and my, uh, my initial thought is, well, saw what? And actually, I think he saw with his kind of frail human mind, if you like, he saw with uh, that part of his kind of, uh, of his being that was just looking at earthly things. And he actually believed that what Jezebel was saying would come true. He actually believed that that would happen unless he ran away. So here was somebody, and it often happens, doesn't it, when we've had a, a really wonderful experience of the Lord, it's very easy for, for suddenly things to take a real turn. And one minute we just feel that, you know, we're so full of hope and so full of expectation and belief. And the next minute it's just, oh, that's kind of flown out the window and it's gone. 
But James 5.17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now, I love it when the Bible says that, because sometimes, you know, you look at uh, superheroes, and, you know, uh, cinema loves superheroes at the moment, and they're just, they're not like us, are they? They have superpowers or whatever they have. But wherever you see the great uh, men and women of God in the Bible, they are human beings like us. Yes, they accomplish wonderful things through the strength of the Lord, but also they're frail and they're weak, just like us. You see, Elijah, Elijah could have looked with the eyes of faith. He could have uh, thought back to uh, the previous day and uh, the fact that he witnessed that all those gods that uh, Jezebel was swearing by didn't actually exist. So she's swearing by all these gods, but who are these gods compared to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings? He had witnessed uh, God's enabling power to overcome his enemies. You know, God sent that fire to cleanse, and then the, the prophets of Baal were all slaughtered. Yet this is one person that is threatening him. And I do wonder whether there was a little bit, uh, I don't know whether you, uh, you go online and you get all these scam emails that are trying to get you to click something or to, uh, to follow a link to something. And often the way they work is by uh, getting you to panic. You know, you've been infe infected with this or you must do this. Otherwise, you're gonna, uh, something terrible is going to happen tomorrow. And it's very easy, isn't it, to panic when there's kind of a short time frame and there's that sense of urgency. So I wonder whether it was just a real sense of panic that uh, Elijah felt that means that he didn't really think about all of the stuff that had happened the day before. And all he could think of was, I need to get out of here, otherwise I won't be here by this time tomorrow. Now, for all of us, we're not uh, going to be obviously in the same situation as Elijah, but when we live for the Lord, hardships and persecutions will come. So we shouldn't be surprised when that happens. Jesus foretold it. The apostles faced it too. And uh, fear is an automatic response to threat. You know, it's uh, something that is, is built into us because it's a, a survival mechanism, really. We need to have that initial uh, fight or flight, as they call it, because uh, if a lion was to come through the doors or if there was an earthquake and things started falling, we need to suddenly switch on and focus and we need to get our way, out of the way of danger. But actually, it's something that we can learn to control. So although it's very difficult to stop it happening initially, we can learn to control it and how to respond to it. We don't have to be governed by that fear. And firstly, we can learn to alter what, what you might call the threat thermostat, if you like. You know, when you have a, a thermostat on the wall, you set it to a certain temperature and it kicks off when the temperature goes uh, beneath that. Or maybe the opposite way around, if you're trying to cool it, as soon as the temperature hits a certain temperature, then the cooling will set in. And what we can do is we can learn, actually, not to start being frightened and panic at every little thing. Now, for some of us, we seem to have our threat thermometer is very low, and everything seems to be a threat. Everything is something to be afraid or anxious about. Other people, uh, and I'm envious of them, uh, seem to have their threat thermometer very high, and it seems nothing phases them. But actually, they seem to uh, be able to deal with so many things uh, that would panic most of us. Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. Now again, I don't know about you, but if I had an army encamping around me, I would probably be panicking. But here is somebody that's learned not to do that. But actually, because they know how great 
and mighty the Lord is and how much the Lord cares for them. Even if an army was encamping around them, they will not fear. Secondly, we can learn to trust God when we do feel fear. So firstly, we can kind of learn to not be panicky about things. But even when we do start to feel that sense of panic, we can learn to look to the Lord and not get kind of swamped in that panic. Psalm 56 verses 3 and 4 said, Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Now, if you notice in there, he starts off by saying, whenever I am afraid. So here is somebody that does get afraid, and they just find themselves in that, in that state, whenever I am afraid. But then if you look at the rest of the verse, it's I will. So although he can't stop that initial fear happening, he can make a decision to, to, to control it, to have that self-control, to say, this is how I will deal with this panic. I will trust in God. I will praise his word. I will put my trust in God. I will not fear. And those two words, fear and afraid, at the beginning and the end, are the same word. But you can see the process that he's going through to say, even though I can't stop this initial panic and fear, I won't let it overwhelm me. And I will go through a process of looking to the Lord and trusting in him, in him to get to a point where I no longer am afraid. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot, fear the, uh, cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, it's all about where we're looking. Don't look at what's happening around us. Don't, look, don't fear and panic about what people can do to you, not because you're superhuman and wonderful and nothing can touch you, but because of who God is. God is the only one that we should fear. But we have to work hard to maintain this self-control. It's not something that comes easily. We have to constantly keep our eyes fixed on God's character and God's promises and to keep reminding him, ourselves that we have his spirit within us. Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love and a sound mind. I don't know about you over the, at the time that I've been a Christian, how many times I had to remind myself of that, that actually what is in me is not a spirit of fear but that God has given me a sound mind to be able to deal with these things. And even when I feel I haven't got a sound mind, when I feel I'm losing it, I remind myself that actually it's his spirit within me. Look at the second half of verses, uh, verse 3 and on to verse 4, and you'll see that Elijah, not only does he run away, but he isolates himself. He leaves his servant behind and goes into the wilderness alone. Now, this can be a dangerous game, but it's one I think especially men seem to do a lot when, they, when they're uh, panicked or when they, they don't know how to deal with something, we tend to isolate ourselves. We go into our shed or we go into our cave. And I, why do we do that? Maybe it's pride. Maybe we don't want to see uh, for other people to see that we're struggling. Maybe we're a bit embarrassed by it. Maybe we think that we're protecting other people, that actually we don't want to share that with those that we love, so we're just going off and trying to deal with it ourselves. Maybe it's more pragmatic than that. Maybe it's just to give ourselves a bit of time to focus and to plan a response. But often that seems to be the way that we can deal with these things, is we just isolate ourselves. And choosing that, especially if it's a result of pride or embarrassment, can be dangerous because we lose that support and the wisdom of our friends. As we were kind of praying about earlier on, you know, we mustn't underestimate how important it is that we're there for one another, that we can be honest with one another, so that we can share our fears and difficulties and support each other. 
It's like those, uh, you know, the David Attenborough programmes where you see the, the leopard or whatever it is trying to isolate one gazelle to get it on its own because there's that safety in numbers. But it's true also that God might lead us into a time of separation, of alone, uh, aloneness or isolation because uh, that's the time sometimes he wants to just get us apart even from those closest to us to discipline us or to speak to us or to test us. Think about Jesus, Matthew 4.1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So isolation is not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be depending on our motives and whether it's us kind of leading ourselves there or whether it's God leading us. And for Elijah, you'll see this in uh, verse 4, the second half of verse 4. It doesn't end well. It actually, this isolation leads to a sense of despair. Now actually, when you look at how far he'd gone, he'd run or or walked quickly uh, over 100 miles away to get to where he was. So that really, if you think about how long it would take to walk that far, that could have been a few days where he'd really had time just to put things in context, maybe to remember uh, the the day before what had happened, to think about the character and the promise of God uh, and God's sovereignty. But it doesn't look as though he did that. He still seems to see his circumstances from his own limited point of view, not from God's. He gets lost in his own little narrow perspective and can't see the bigger picture. And because he was alone, he had no one to help him, no one to uh, tell him a different uh, uh, point of view or to, uh, to give him some options. And I think he had to face his own impotence. He had to face the fact that despite experiencing the power of God, he'd come face to face with his own humanity and, in a sense, his own uh, lack of courage, even maybe lack of faith. Despite being an anointed prophet of God, he realised that as a man in his own strength, that he was actually no better than his forefathers. And this led to what we might call a bit of self-pity, really feeling sorry for himself that he was the only one that was left. And because of this, he became very desperate. He came to the end of himself. And uh, in the job that I do, I come across a lot of people uh, that have either tried to take their own life or have been contemplating it. And I would say most people don't actually want to die. They don't want to die. They just want a way through. But if they can't see a way through, they just want a way out. And Elijah saw uh, in his own eyes that death was the only way out. He couldn't see a way through at all. But the good thing is that rather taking things into his own hands and uh, ending his own life, he prayed. And if you look at the prayer... It's a prayer of somebody that doesn't actually know what else to pray. He just prays that God would take his life. He actually prays that God would just take all of this away and remove him from the situation. And the irony really is that he's in that situation because he's fleeing for his life. But then he gets to a point where he wants his life to end. And again, it's kind of when somebody gets in that place, it's the kind of reasoning sort of goes out the window and it's a, a, you know, really all you can see is I just need an end to this. And how sad that uh, in fleeing from Jezebel, he gets to this point where he just wants the Lord to take his life rather than her. I think, as I said before, fear and despair are different. Fear is that I am, that you know that you are, something's happened within you, there's a threat around you that has caused your heart rate to increase, you've got butterflies in your stomach, maybe you're starting to panic. It's the beginning of a response to a threat that might be um, you know, something that you do have to respond to. If, if there is a genuine threat, you do have to get out of there. 
But it can always end in victory if we act wisely and we turn to God for help. But when we start talking about despair and anxiety, these are more longer-term consequences when we give in to fear. They're the belief that we can't defeat or escape the threats in our own strength. And actually, that's often true. We can't deal with it in our own strength. But what we're doing is denying the power and the love of God. <coughs> Elijah was not alone in the great men of God to get lost in despair. Think of Jonah, chapter 4, verse 3. O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Think of Moses, Numbers 11, 13 to 15. I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. If I found favour in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. Just like Peter walking on water, if we look at our own capabilities, then it will look like the waves can overwhelm us. But if we look at Jesus and his sovereignty, then no wave is big enough. Psalm 61, verses 1 to 2 says, Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. As he did at the Red Sea, God can make a way where there is no way. So it's vital when we feel fear or anxiety or despair that we pray. Even if we're so desperate that all we can ask is for God to take our lives, still go to God. And he will respond to even the smallest, most desperate cry of faith. Think about Jesus when Peter started to drown. Even though he lacked faith to keep walking, God, Jesus saved him. God will make a way to shore. Isaiah 43, 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters. The New Testament is full of encouragements to go to God even in our darkest times. Philippians 4, 6-7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds to Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5, 6-8. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversity, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. As has been said before, you'll never truly realise God is all you need until he, be until he becomes all that you have. And what happens as a response to Elijah's prayer? Well, you'll see that in verses 5 to 7. God doesn't grant his request. Now, maybe Elijah uh, lays down out of total exhaustion. Maybe he uh, lays down to go to sleep because he just hopes that he'll die in his sleep. But actually, he wakes up and God sends an angel to provide him with food and drink to strengthen him. And for me, I think Elijah's eating is that beginning of a desire to live. You know, if Elijah really wanted to die above all things, he wouldn't have ate. But he just wants a way out. And God's grace and God's mercy and God's kindness shows him uh, a way out, gives him hope. And the angel returns a second time to encourage and strengthen him as there was a further journey ahead. See, God gave Elijah hope that his life's journey wouldn't end in the wilderness. And if you think about the life of Jesus, angels ministered to him in the wilderness 
and in Gethsemane. You see, the Christian life cannot be lived in our own strength, but only through God's sustaining power and provision. And as the angel said to Elijah, so I think is true for us, this journey is too great for us. In our own strength, we cannot live this life. But God is with us every step of the way. He directs us, he encourages us, he ministers to us. Psalm 91, 11, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. But he also ministers to us through other people. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, encourage one another and build each other up. So Elijah perseveres in the strength of God. Look at verse 8. Elijah's faith and hope were restored as he ate and set out on his, his God-directed journey. And he went to Horeb, which is, is Mount Sinai, where the place where Moses met with God and gave him the Ten Commandments. Now, we don't know whether he was heading in that direction right from the beginning or whether God kind of redirected him. But there's an interesting question of why was he going there? Why there? We know what he was fleeing away from, but why was he going to Sinai? And God himself challenges him in verses 9 and 10. What are you doing here? And the word of the Lord often comes as a question. If you think about Jesus, how often he asked questions, even answering a question with another question, to get people to be honest with themselves. You know, sometimes we just need stopping, and we need somebody to ask us a difficult question. What are you doing here? Now, there's lots of ways you could phrase that, uh, where the emphasis you could put. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Or what are you doing here? I don't know what the, uh, the stress was that the Lord put on it, but all of those, if you actually analyse that question, there's probably a whole sermon in that. There's a, you know, it really makes um, you think. And often God questions us as well when we read his word. And Elijah's answer is probably uh, not the right answer in a sense, but it was, it was an honest answer because Elijah answers uh, by stating that he, he thought he'd been faithful to God. He felt that he'd served God, but actually he'd been faithful in vain because even though he'd had this wonderful victory one day, the next day he was, he was in fear of his life. And if you look about it, he made no mention of God's actions on Mount Carmel. He doesn't mention the Israelites' declaration that the Lord alone is God or the miracle, uh, miraculous ending of the drought. All he seems to be able to focus on is the difficult situation that he's in. Rather than praising and thanking God for the victory, he seems to be inviting God into what we might say is a bit of a, a pity party. You see, he couldn't see past the disappointment, the fear that had resulted from the way that he was viewing the situation that he was in. And it's amazing that God is so merciful in his response. Again, it encourages me that when people are really honest with God, when they really tell God how they're feeling, and sometimes even uh, get angry and have a go at God, he doesn't dismiss them. He doesn't smite them and, and zap them down. He loves us so much that he can cope with actually what's on our heart, because he knows it anyway. You know, you can't say anything to God that he doesn't already know, because he knows our hearts. So what does God do? He redirects Elijah's focus from the circumstances that he's in and the threats that have made against him, from his own inability and his own strength to deal with those. And God redirects Elijah to himself. And when the heavens declare the glory of God, when all of creation 
declares the glory of God. The reason is, is because there's nothing better for us than to see and experience the glory of God. See, God didn't want Elijah to focus on himself and the situation, but God wants us, God wanted Elijah to focus on himself. God in his grace didn't smite Elijah for his lack of faith and ungratefulness, but blessed him and actually blessed him in the greatest way possible by meeting with him in person. And when you look at it, when he meets with him in person, you've got this, you know, the earthquakes and the fire, but actually he meets him in a question. And it's exactly the same question that he asked before. What are you doing here? And Elijah still doesn't seem to get it um, because he responds with exactly the same answer, exactly the same words as before. So to me, it's clear that whatever Elijah was doing there, it was very different from what God intended to do there. And how true that is for us, that whatever we're doing in our lives can be very different from what God is doing, what God is doing behind the scenes, the things that he is accomplishing. You see, you'll see in verses 15 to 21, God makes a way. You know, Elijah was so despondent, even to the point where he wanted his life to end because he couldn't see a way. Because in his eyes, there was no way. But in God's eyes, there was plenty of ways. God had a plan. God had a plan to bring justice. God had a plan to bring righteousness. God had a plan uh, with people that he'd already chosen and set in place. God had a plan for Elijah in the midst of all of this. Elijah's time wasn't over. And he graciously showed that I, Elijah, that he was actually mistaken. You know, isn't it so wonderful that the Lord is so gentle with us and just gently shows us that actually the reason that we're fearful, the reason that we're anxious, is because we're seeing the situation from our eyes, not from his eyes. See, God had actually reserved 7,000 true Israelites who would support him. He wasn't alone. God had chosen Elisha to help Elijah and to take over his ministry, so it wasn't in vain. Elijah wouldn't be killed by Jezebel. In fact, he would never die. I just love that. Here's a guy that was afraid of being killed by one person, got to a point where he wanted God to take his own life. And how does God respond? He never dies. 2 Kings 2, 11. Suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. How amazing, how gracious, how merciful God is even when we are unfaithful and unbelieving. And he was actually a lot better than his forefathers. If you think about it, he would eventually be sent by God to encourage Jesus at his transfiguration. I think even Elijah will admit that none of his forefathers had that privilege. See, Elijah's journey, like ours, was a roller coaster. From the mountain of public success to a wilderness of fear, despair and loneliness back up to a mountain of encouragement and exhortation and down to a wilderness that had now become one of success and hope. And God met him graciously in very different ways at every stage of his journey. So what can we say in conclusion? Well, let me ask you that self-same question. What are you doing here? Maybe you're looking for help in difficult circumstances. Maybe you're just looking for a way to avoid help. Maybe you're looking for God to bless you with a better life and you've tried lots of things and you thought you'd give God a go. Maybe you're overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. 
Maybe you're feeling sorry for yourself. Maybe you're feeling alone or helpless. But the wonderful good news is that whatever your reason, God will not reject you or laugh at you. Isaiah 42, 3. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. See, whatever reason you're here, whatever reason you've come to this place, whatever your purpose is, God has a greater purpose, and that's to meet with you, to take your eyes off yourself and your circumstances and onto him, for salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, he won't leave us in our circumstances. He won't indulge us in our self-centeredness or our fear or despair. Why? Because it's not good for us. God will use the situation and our response to it as a, as a way of revealing more of himself to us and reminding us of his power, of his goodness and encouraging us to go forwards to see what he is doing for his good, uh, sorry, for our good and for his glory. You see, God is not just here to meet your needs. He has got you here because he wants a relationship with you to love you as a father loves his child. God just doesn't give us good gifts. God gives us himself. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Amen.